Hi everyone, it's Joakim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. Podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this episode, I'm talking with Joe Shapey and Bastian Bergman, the founders of 12 Trades, a company that helps you to discover and analyze your audience. I've been following the development of 12 Trades since my next games days, and the service is incredibly valuable for any kind of live games, free-to-play games, service-based games. In this discussion, we talk about identifying your real audience as a game developer, how you can exclude groups that won't stick to your game anyways, and how games can grow when you have a better understanding of your players. But before we go to this episode, here's a few words from our sponsors. Are you a mobile game developer who's looking to try something new on the ad creative side? My top pick would be influencer-generated content, IGC, by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific content from your games and Opera Event will deliver you high-quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Go to getigc.com to see some examples. That's getigc.com. Hi, Bastian. Hi, Joe. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Joachim. Thank you. Hey, Joachim. Hey, it's a good time to, to have a, another chat with you guys about 12 Trades. It's been a while. It was like pre-pandemic days when we last chatted here on the show. First off, like, it would be great to hear an introduction on 12 Trades to the people who don't know what you guys are doing. Cool. I can maybe jump in mm-hmm. and, and start there. 12 Trades is, is the most powerful way to, to understand your, your audience and activate your product around your audience. One way to think of it is, is as kind of the operating system for product experiences. So we're, we're living in a world where experiences are becoming more and more important. Games are obviously experiences. And to really create incredible experiences, we really need to understand the who behind the experience, which is our players. So we help companies understand their audiences and then through different product verticals, um, Traits is, is our product that allows people to really um, understand their live games. There's an API layer where people can do personalization work through if someone has really high altruism. You can make sure that they're getting more of an altruistic experience, for example. But Traits is that live game experience. Navigator is our, our database. So it's probably the largest psych database in the world where people can launch um, new audiences, explore different IPs. It really helps you in, in early stages of, of development or when you're looking at different markets and market sizing and market potential. And then our other product is Frequency, which is basically a creative intelligence management platform. So imagine if um, you had Google Drive and all of your creative actually had all the data you could imagine attached to that creative that you can hook up yourself, as well as if it was actually in advance, you knew how it matched different parts of your audience. So we have we have really cool predictive scores. It's called a resonance score. So we can actually know before even doing A-B testing, for example, if a creative is going to resonate with, with the ideal audience that, that you have. So those are our three main product verticals. But yeah, baseline is just that. If you're serious about, I think, making an incredible experience in 2020, 
uh, one and beyond. We're that provider that most of the major game companies work with now to really understand their audience and, and make kind of next level experiences. Right. Uh, like, I think I want to come back to the examples of, of the audience understanding when you have an audience already, but like, in the early stages, when you, when you still have a concept, uh, like if, let's say I, I'm, I'm running a games company and I'm thinking about making a new game, maybe we have some ideas on the table, drawing around, um, but we're not sure yet. Like, what would be the way that 12 traits could help me in, in assessing these ideas? For sure. So that would be working with our, our navigator product. And it's, it's kind of where the potential of your company and your ideas is going to meet the market. So when we're really early, we're always talking about product market fit, right? Um, and the market's constantly changing. So what you can do is you can come to us and you can say, Hey guys, I'm thinking about making a game. It's this combination of mechanics. I'm thinking about making a game. It's maybe this art style, or maybe these list of art styles, or maybe these themes, or actually we're, we're look, entertaining working with a specific IP as well. And because within our database, when we measure a psychological profile, we also actually know what's their favorite brands, what media channels they're on, what activities they do. We know all the mechanics that they're really engaged with from a game perspective. We know the art styles. So you can sort of give us this clay-like thing, this uh, amalgamation of, of different ideas that you're you know, kind of thinking through. And what we're able to do at that really, really early stage, like Christian Segerstrahl and I did this with some stuff that they're, that they're working on, where he sent over like some information and we're able to look at, oh, interesting, this IP plus these mechanics, the market size for, for this group is sizable. I mean, they're spending like pretty decent money. That's an interesting use case where we had another IP and some other mechanics. And it just, you could see that there wasn't really a market there for it yet. So just from the very start of knowing like, is this a good market to go into? That's like step one. And then step two, if you look at uh, 10 square games, for example, when we worked with them, they already had concepts and ideas. We launched a dashboard for them where they said, we're kind of going to make this game. It's, it's a blend of kind of these popular features and mechanics with our unique art style and take on it. And we can input those in our system. We launched that audience and their whole thing was, whoa, like we actually now know who we're making this for because it was an innovative concept. It was a new concept. And then through that journey, how we helped them was like, let's say we're in the art style phase. They can send over all their art styles and we're actually able to do what we call resonance testing and actually be able to see what art style grabs the most attention, which one's going to be the most worthwhile. What are people going to be most likely to install ads off of? It, it looks at all these different metrics and it does it not just for like that whole audience, but the individual sort of, we call them like like-minded groups. They're like the think-alike groups that are, that are in that audience. And what they realized for, there is a, a kind of like Tokyo district theme that scored really well across that whole audience, but they had, I think, seven major personas that were there. And the two that had the, the biggest market potential and the highest um, spend. So they were like more likely the ones that were spending money in this space. They had different high value sort of their art styles were different. Like one, I think was more of this like fantasy Alice in Wonderland type art style that they really resonated with. So what it allowed them to do is combine these art styles and make more of a hybrid. They did the same thing with the mechanics and the core loop in the game. Like we have a integration with Playtest Cloud. So when people do playtesting with, with Playtest Cloud through us, it doesn't only show you like 
yeah, this part's challenging or this part's great. You actually know on a per persona basis. So you can see, we've heard this so many times from game studios where they go, I'm the player of this game. Like I know, like I've definitely played these types of games. I know what I'm talking about. And then we'll say, well, let's look at the personas, like which persona is kind of closest to you. And they'll be like, oh, it's this persona three. And then they'll see that maybe for that persona, the market size is actually, there's only 3 million people like that out there. And they're like, well, all my friends are like this. Well, yeah, there's 3 million people like that out there. And of course you associate with people like you, but there's this other group here and there's 200 million people like this out there. And they spend more money in this space than you and your mm -hmm. friends do. And so being able to actually break it down and go through play testing and seeing, hey, what the people that were really struggling on this part actually they're not the core user for the market we're designing for or the people that are, are really thriving they love this part of the game they and we didn't even think about that and so i think it, it allows one to really make sure their development costs are not being used as their research budget and with 10 square games for example one of the things they came back and said to us they're like we went through our development process 50 percent faster than we normally do and you have a clear, which makes sense if you clearly know who you're making something for rather than kind of molding something into shape. And I, I even think of like the best in the business, like Supercell, they were over 500 days in soft launch with Brawl Stars. It, it, it's not, it's, it's hard to make, find product market fit even for the best of us. So starting out with the market and like knowing here's my audience, that's how we really help uh, early stage companies quite a bit. Or early stage. Yeah. Too. Yeah. That's like this, like if you think about the long tail of gaming startups that are out there, like who don't yet have high, like profit or whatnot, they're still searching. There's a lot, a lot of different kind of companies there. How would somebody who's really like strapped with cash get use out of 12 trades? I, I believe there's a track to when they're a bit bigger company. You, you guys can help even more, but like, how do you sort of like bring in the, the folks who are still at the early stage with not a lot of capital to spend? Yeah, those are, that's a really, really good question. And I think when you look at overall the studios that we're working with and who's really leveraging this type of data to make their new games, half of them are teams that are less than 10 people, eight people, really, really small, just starting out. Just last week, uh, I was on a call with um, just the two founders. Of, of a new game studio and it's their first concept and that that's it that's all the manpower that they that they have and that they can throw behind the game and obviously there's resource constraints and, and budget constraints so i think there, there's two important thoughts here the first one is we we do make it accessible for early stage companies there's a couple of specific VCs that we actually partner with. Play Ventures is one of them where the portfolio companies do get for their, for their first go around a specific discount to make that more accessible because we know of the importance of leveraging it as early as possible in the development process. Like we always get this question, when is a good time to start working with 12 Trades and really start using you know, our insights in the game development process? And the very short, simplified answer is the earlier, the earlier, the better. It's never too early to start to start thinking from your ultimate target audience, your, your player's perspective to guide your development, to guide your thought process. So we do, we do help on the pricing side for early stage companies quite, quite a bit. And then the second component is, and I think that's the reality too, the value that you're getting out of that data, it's effectively hiring four or five people, high quality researchers, 
user experience designers, data scientists, all of the people that you would need to even attempt to come close to be, be able to generate similar data or, or data that could get you close to some of the same answers that you're looking for as early in the process and how, not only how costly is it to hire these people from a recruiting process, salaries, onboarding folks, let alone just finding the talent. Like those are some of the hardest roles to hire for, for any, for any tech company right now. And gaming's no different. And there's a plethora of early stage companies. There's a plethora of ideas. There's a plethora of capital out there and, and kind of the competition for, for the best minds and the best people to fill those, fill those roles is really, really hard. So in essence, it's, it's like supercharging your, your early development, even if all of the butts aren't in, in their seats yet, so to speak, from the team perspective. Yeah, that makes sense. Look, moving on a bit in the discussion, talk about how you guys help out like on the marketing side. Well, because there's, there's a lot of changes been happening in the last year with the IDFA stuff and how marketing a game nowadays is becoming more about how do you leverage different kind of possibilities, like having brands, IPs, whatnot in the games, create a ROAS that is very like that you can scale the game. How do you, how do you supply stuff for people who are doing marketing and how would like your products help? If you go back to the old days of marketing, like the, the Mad Men days, right? It's all about creative. It was all about who, who am I? Cause you had a billboard, you had to put something on a billboard. A lot of people were going to drive past it. And if, if you're selling a specific product for a specific type of person, you really got to know what's going to make them tick and you got to know what's going to call their attention. And so, and I think that's a really important thing to bring up first is a, a great ad has multiple components to it. Of, of course it's attention getting, we have one game that we worked with, for example, though, that was like. We get more installs off of this ad and lower CPIs than any other ad, but the ROAS is horrible. It's, it's terrible. And it's like, well, then we don't understand what a good ad is yet. Attention is just the first part, right? The second part is attracting the right person. And it, it happened, it just so happened that this ad was very, it, it was very different than I'm like, if you want to make a game off of this ad, maybe that's something that you could do, but that's a whole, whole different story. Cause the ad was a different art style than the game. It was using different tropes, different elements. And so when companies come to us and say, hey guys, we're, we're learning, we're moving through IDFA. We've been doing broader targeting help. Like how do we, how do we do this better? And one of the things that I think we really bring to the table, just first and foremost, is whether you're looking at a live game and it's your current audience or whether you're looking at new markets and new things to get into. So if it's a live game, you can go in and you can look at, of course, your highest LTV people. You can look at their art style. You can look at what motivates them. It gives you very specific things to, it gives you copy suggestions. So it gives you very specific things. And then what a lot of companies do, they, they drop their creatives. We have a creative review funnel. You can drop creatives in it. And what our AI does on the back end, it tags the image with everything that's in there. And then because it has tags, so we know... Um, on our product frequency, when people hook up their their data to basically, you can you can connect a creative, a piece of creative to the actual data that you have in your system. So we have integrations with TikTok and and Facebook and Snapchat. We have these integrations. So all of a sudden, I'm looking at creative and I can see how it's performing on Snapchat or TikTok, or et cetera. But what that allows us to do is 
basically we've been training for two years now, how those different tags that the AI does, we know if somebody, for example, is really extroverted, maybe that it's when blue sky unicorns and people shouting, when those things get tagged in an ad, we know that resonates with them. So it's a way before you even do AB testing, before you even do anything like that, to actually manage your creative, manage your anything you design um, for, for marketing purposes and you know, videos, whatever, and really get a good idea of who it's going to resonate with it and, and also why. So as a part of the creative review process too, there's another human being on the back end who is basically checking everything. It's all supervised based learning. They're like, yep, it, it does this, this, and this. And typically what we see with, with customers is the ads that come out of that end up being their best performing ads. So we had one, for example, empathy was off the charts for this client. It says use more facial expressions because that's what we know. And boom, that happened. Empathy, the ROAS got better. They're acquiring the right people. We had another case, the two highest values. This was for way back in the day, but this is, this is a fun case. This is, I think, one of the more primitive uses of our platform. Now we have all this really cool technology, but this was um, for Dragonvale. And what happened there was there's a baby dragon with a family around each other. And they got like 34% uplift in their click-through rates on their, on their app store page uh, on top of anything they'd had in like the past seven years. And that just happened because they looked at the hundreds of site traits we measure and the top two were, were family and caring. So the Zach, who's, he's the VP of marketing now at MobilityWare, but he saw that and he was like, let's put baby dragon with a family together. He's like, and I've been in marketing my whole life. I have no, I, I, how could I have known that baby dragon with family being cared about? He's like, all is like, it just made it so easy for me to just see, here's what we need to build an ad around. And I think the, the really important message around all this is nothing is, nothing has really fundamentally changed about people in advertising. Like if you look into the research, creative has always accounted for around 50% of the ROI, the creative optimization we're targeting has only been about 7% of the ROI. We just got way too good at targeting as an industry because it was so measurable. But the gold has always been in the creative, no matter what, like even when there was IDFA and all these things in place. So if you want to have the biggest ROI impact, either way, optimizing creative based on what, what does that key audience that you want to procure, what do they care about? And I think that's maybe just our navigator case. We have companies that come to us then and say, guys, we're tapped out. We have a huge audience. We want to grow it. Who else is out there? And then we can go and you know play with some things. And we actually have a, in our algorithm, it finds the highest value persona. So it looks outside of your game and it knows, hey, there's a group of people over here, potentially like 30 million of them that you're not even doing anything for let's build some, let's build some creative for them and, and let them know about your incredible experience. And that's the coolest. I think the coolest part about all this, cause we actually get player feedback. Cause at the end of the day, our customers are the, are the players, all of us. And they'll actually be like, there's 800,000 games out there. They'll be like, I would have never discovered this game if it wasn't, if I didn't see that ad, but it, and it spoke to me in a certain way. And so it, it's good for the game company, but it's also good for the player because they're trying to cut through the noise too. So it, it mm. helps in the same way, like that person driving down the, the high freeway with the billboard. If you're advertising diamonds to eight-year-olds, diamond rings to eight-year-olds, yeah, they might look at and they might click on 
that type of image because it's sparkly and shiny they're not the ones who can afford and buy those diamond rings though so it's how do you position that ad in a way that it's for that that right person yeah yeah that's so amazing like is it do you think is it still like game studios that are sort of looking into this or are you also working with creative companies or agencies that are doing creatives like have you explored that yet Yeah, there's a couple of conversations with some some partners that game studios also happen to work with a lot. Not not every game studio does their creative in in house internally. So there's there's conversations we're having with some partners, both for for them to just get really good at understanding our our insights and what that means, and in turn translating that and helping game companies do better creative based on that. So it's kind of like three way collaboration. And then there's also more as a tangential to that business related conversations of just partnering with those agencies and understanding what are general themes in gaming brands and gaming coming together. There's a, there's a couple of agencies that work with some of the bigger social media platforms where we're being brought into the conversation now, because they all have a gaming agenda behind it and they're trying to bridge between between those worlds and build out the gaming offering and how do you how do you tap into that you know demographic group the population that is the gamer from a from a creative side that's a lot of times where through creative agencies will be a big part of that conversation that's nice very cool hey so going back again to that game idea when you're when you're figuring out what you want to build Maybe you now know the audience a lot better for the concept you're you're going after, and then you start working on the game. But then it's then you still get a lot of questions regarding the thematics that you want to pick, for instance. Uh, and then you look at the the core loop, how that relates, but sort of changes decisions that you need to do there, uh, and also the meta game, how how that works with the core loop and what where you can double down versus maybe first knowing what will work. Like, how do you guys come in? Do you want me to grab that one, Bash? Yeah. I think the first and foremost important thing here is the companies we work with, they're the pros. They're like, these are the the game designers, the product managers, the game team. They're the, they're the experts. So we come in to listen. I think that's the first the first thing. Like, what's your guys' vision? What are you imagining? And this is like kind of maybe to to speak to the the 10 square games case again. Once, for example, once we were able to to test all their different art styles and and mood boards, and we've done this, like you can, sometimes they're like, they already have like one of the games they had, they already had ready art art that was done. Like they had like a few different art concepts that were there. They had a few different theme concepts that were there. Another team didn't, like they were even before that. They just handed us mood boards. There's like, here's six mood boards for like themes and art styles. And then we we go out and then that's part of our integration with, with Playtest Cloud, where we're able to directly put these things in front of the actual audience because they've launched a navigator audience. And that's the special part about this. The actual audience gets gets to see it. And I think like with, with Mainframe, for example, like really early, like really early on, that's a good example from a research side of things where they were able to come to us. Hey, we're, we're super early. And what's, what's beautiful about it is when the research comes back, they're like, wait, it's persona one, two, three, four. Why didn't we get any research data for persona five and six? Like, this is just an example. And it's like, well, there's just not a lot of them out in the market. So if you guys want, we can expand our study like, oh, well actually persona five as an example was really, really important. 
we wanted to make sure they were a part of the research study. So we're like, okay, if we want the next study, we'll make sure to really target those people and bring them in. So what it allows us to do then is start to validate all the different mechanics, art styles, themes, loops. The next step, for example, with 10 square games, after they did the art style and theme, and we're like, great, like we know, we now know that this is going to resonate with this audience. We, it's not a guess anymore. And then they get into the next phase. They handed us over their prototype. And this is this is where, because of our integration with Playtest Cloud, a couple name drops there with, for, for them, I guess. But because of our integration there, what's happening is people are going through the playtesting per usual. But then what, what's happening on, on our side is our algorithm is able, actually, able to actually know which parts of that navigator audience, the bigger market audience, each play tester is or isn't like sometimes people will go through a play test from like they actually weren't a part of that bigger market audience. So, and, and there's been so many times in my career where like when I was at big fish, for example, I saw a game designer see one thing in one play test and go, we need to change that. We need to, it's like, that might not have been the right person. Like that might've, and that's just the, per, that's just one person. Right. So what's happening then is we're able to start to tighten the, the product market fit way before soft launch happens. And that's such a cool thing. Like I've been in, in game teams and we work with game teams who by the time they get to soft launch, it's like, now they're, they're like, shit, we literally have had companies come like, why didn't we work with you guys six months ago? And, and a, one of the common things is like game teams will say like, we're just too busy. We have the roadmap set maybe later, maybe in six months. And then when you get to soft launch, now the investors are, now people are looking at things and the numbers aren't, aren't working the way they should. And then we're like, it's kind of like being a surgeon and being like, Hey, if we did the surgery now we can prevent all these things from happening. And you go, no, no, no. And then you come back to us in six months when it's like really bad. And we're like, well, we can still help. Like, definitely we can still understand what's here, but you guys went in this direction with all these mechanics and features. Cause then we do the, the same play testing and the same everything. And then we understand how that fits against the market potential. And it's like, you guys built a game for like this market here. And now you're in a niche market. Good luck getting this game over 50,000 a month in revenue maximum. Like that's your potential now, unless we revamp, redo. And now it's, you're looking at another year out, you're changing the game, you're changing features. You just spent all that development time as your research budget. It's the most expensive mistake every game, every early game uh, studio makes. And I think what, what happens a lot of times there is we have this vision and it's, and we don't want anyone to touch our, our vision and a creative vision is it's, it is, it's deeply personal a lot of the times, but what we find is for a lot of creative people, um, it expands their vision because now they can take the vision and adapt it to where the market is actually going to embrace it as opposed to putting it out there. And there's just not enough people. It's, it's niche which is, I think that's okay if you're an indie studio and that's your goal. But if you have investors backing you, you have, there's a fiduciary duty that's, that's there to, to make sure you're doing right by everyone. I think that the scalability is really interesting. There's so many companies nowadays coming up with, with like a Brawl Stars game. Like, hey, this is like, it's Brawl Stars, but doing X instead of Y. Like then I, I'm thinking like, this is like a, a red ocean how do you guys bring in the scientific approach for red ocean, blue ocean, when somebody's 
thinking about a concept. Maybe the thematics are different. What matters there? Yeah, there's a few different components and theme is definitely one of them. I think a really, really good example there is Plantopia, Voodoo's latest casual game that's headed by Sophie Wu and the team. When we talked to her a couple of weeks ago, she left us with a quote that really, really struck a chord. And I think it fits perfectly, you know, answers the question that you just asked, because they went into the merge space, which by now it's, it, it is arguably one of the redder oceans that's, that's out there. It wasn't like that maybe three years ago, but now it's definitely one of the red oceans and there's a lot of money in there and it's hard to stand out and be competitive. And what she said was her sentiment. That's exactly what, because they used Navigator early on to make that game and now we're fully integrated. They're constantly assessing their audience as it grows and as it scales. And she said that was the, among many things, the really important thing that Navigator and in, in, in our service allowed them, her and the team to do was make a game that feels familiar to people in that space that is still unique enough so that it can stand out from the rest of the crowd and find its own audience, its own group amongst the bigger, the bigger pool. And in their case, it was definitely around, it was definitely around the theme. It was definitely around gardening, learning around those, those sorts of things, you know, flowers, everything that goes, that goes with it. That was very, very unique. And even there, and there's, there's an actual case study that we, we'd be more than happy to share with anyone that's interested to dig into that. But it, it wasn't smooth sailing for them the entire journey. They, they had to iterate and they went back and forth. And early on, the game was struggling a little bit with early retention. And Sophie went back to the audience that they were working off of in, in Navigator from us. And they had a key realization on the early core loop and needing to de decouple or detach the actual progression in the game and how skilled and how capable you were at merging items from the theme and the meta and your ability to learn about gardening and everything that's related to just the thematics of the game. And that completely changed the ball game for them in terms of early retention and actually allowed them to find profitability much, much more quickly and put the game on financially very sound footing and on a, in a position to be ready to go global and scale in, in tier one territories after that. So there was like a four, four to six week period in between where she was explaining that very vividly going back into the audience that we have one shot at getting this right. And the platform allowed me to pinpoint what that major thing was that we were able to fix within four weeks because and quote unquote, fixing a casual game in four weeks, that's, that's a pretty short timeline. Like there's, there's a million things you could do. And I think the natural inclination, what we, what we see a lot from a lot of teams is you jump on, we need to add more content. That's why early retention's broken. You need to add more, more, more. And a lot of times that's not, that's not the reason there was something fundamentally that needed to be fixed. And in their case, it was detaching the motivation for learning from your actual skills at progressing in the game early on. And and that was, that was the kicker for them to scale the game. So yeah, in that case, exactly to your question, Joachim, theme. And there's other studios in, just to stick to the merge example, that are in that space who are using our data to identify what are different thematic avenues where you could really, the base is merge, that's the core, that's the core mechanic. But how can you be, you know, innovate around the meta and bringing in some other elements to appeal to different parts of the audience? Because especially in merge, there's match three players playing those games. Like if we're talking about traditional more stereotypes, simulation players, uh, there's people that played word games traditionally a lot that are now going into merge. So it's a very, it's a very colorful mix of 
let's say, the type of people, if you look at their traditional gameplay preferences, who are going into that, that particular category, which in turn also means that there's a lot of opportunity for innovation on meta and on themes that will allow you to let your game stand out like Plantopia is able to do. Yeah, and, that's brilliant. Yeah. And I might chime in on the um, Blue Ocean part too. I think a big realization that not every game company has come to yet is used to be able to make blue oceans in, in the gaming, in our world. I mean, our, our industry has been growing like 20% year over year. Used to be able to say, I'm going to take a shooter and cross it with a match three and blue ocean, right? Like there's, there's people out there that you could cross two popular fundamental kind of mechanics or things like that and, and create a game off of that. Those days are dead. They're, they're gone. And so in, in, I think Bastion's use case that he's talking about with Voodoo, that's really important because a lot of people are, red oceans are safer though, because there's an established market there. So a lot of companies use us to find their space within a crowded, within a red ocean. But to make a blue ocean now, what's changed is, what's fundamentally changed is, as we, we know, 2020 was the first year, even before COVID was really full, full swing, where human beings globally spent more money's on more money on experiences than goods and services. And with that came, if we're creating blue oceans now, designing to problems, designing to a certain group of people, designing to emotions, designing to a memory. These are the things that if you think about outside of gaming, these are old design thinking ideas. These are how companies innovate though, how big companies that have been innovating for a long time, this is how they innovate. So companies can come to us and say, what? We want to make, we want to make a better game for like 30 year old females. That's it. And then we can come and put 30 year old females in Navigator and we can launch that audience. And then they can go, whoa, like we didn't know that, that they, they do this and like this and this, and this is their personality. Cause then it also, it allows you to, it, it's a blank slate. It's a blue ocean. The amount it's, you're not taking what's out there and blending things together or a problem. One of the problems we want to make a game where there's, there's no toxicity in, in sort of a competitive world. Okay. Mm -hmm. Do you guys want to do that by, we can pull an audience that has low levels of psychological traits that are low on toxicity. That's one way of doing it. We can, and, and that, that have a lot of competitive features that they like in different games. So you can start to launch things around solving a specific problem, or there's like even bigger problem. Like people have come to us and, and said things like, we want to, we want to solve like communication issues that, that people are having in 2021, like big, bigger kind of things like that or healthcare. And we've had people that said medicine and, and mental health, like we want to solve those problems and we can go in and we can launch audiences based off of this type of, of data. And so if you're really looking to create a blue ocean now, thinking about it from solving a problem or, or designing to a memory or designing to an emotion, like if I think some Japanese studios think a little bit more this way than some of us in the West, but like, we want people to feel X when they play this game. And I always, as a UX designer, you can read tons of blogs about this. Like there, there should be a memory that people have when they leave your experience, but we, we know emotional styles. So if we said we want people to feel excited and tranquil, we could launch an audience of people that are looking to feel that in games. And then we could see like, well, what kind of mechanics do they like? Like what themes do they like? What, what's their personality like? Who are these people? 
And what you end up with on the other end is something that's truly yours. And that's, that's a big, that's a risk that obviously going into a build blue ocean, building a blue ocean, it's much riskier than going into a red ocean and finding your space within it. But I think both those cases, we, we serve both of those. And I think it's really, really, really fun when people are, um, want to go for the blue ocean because your, your uh, reward is matched to your risk and yep. anyone seeking a blue ocean, that's a risky endeavor and taking us as a friend and as a guide to start that out. I think it's, it's priceless. There's, you can't put a dollar value on, on doing that. If you're truly looking to really change something. It does help a lot. Yeah. yeah. I think one of the, the obvious places where it starts to matter with the audience a lot is when the interaction starts and the game is going into into soft launch, which nowadays means like soft launch is basically never ends. <laughs> you just open new markets, scale the UI, UI, and and go from there. Like so many, so many companies have dropped this global launch as a term that doesn't exist anymore. Small markets first, small scale. How do you guys help there? with figuring out the market strategy so that you have a target audience there when you're still at small scale, but then ramping up. What are your thoughts there? Yeah. So like with super, like with super evil Megacorp, for example, with Catalyst Black, that's like very good use case. We came in and we said, how are we going to really scale this game? Who's our core core customer? They're able to see both the, the personas from the early people in Catalyst Black. And I think this is an important thing. When you're oftentimes, when you're very early in, in especially in soft launch, the people that are going to be in that game, a lot of the time, they're fans from other games of yours. They're friends and family. They're not the audience at scale yet. There, You can get really good behavioral metrics. Like you can know if your usability sucks, for example, you can know that, but you don't know yet if you're, if you're optimizing to them, you might not be optimizing to your potential. I think that's a really, I'm going to say that again. If you're optimizing to the people that who are your super fans from other games, you might not be optimizing to the potential of your new game. I think that's, that's really, really important. And so for example, with this, we actually took all the mechanics from Catalyst Black, the art style, everything, plugged it into the database. And then we looked at that audience and you could see that there's actually a different number of core personas. There is bigger market potential with some of those, those people. And because you can micro segment in our tool, which I think is this, a lot of people think of segmentation. And one of the things they often confuse with us is, is behavior. Cause they're used to putting people in like high spender, low spender, these kind of buckets. But it's, it's really the way to think about our, our product is like, give us parameters and we'll be Harry Potter sorting hat. Like maybe your parameters Hogwarts. And what you're looking at today is just all of the people in Hogwarts because you said Hogwarts, but what we are is the sorting hat. So we're actually going to find that there's actually four major groups of people in Hogwarts and there's the Hufflepuffs and there's the Gryffindors and there's the Slytherins and there's their engagement. So we're actually going to find the like-minded groups within that and, and imagine like a, in Harry Potter when they have all the different competitions and there's people from the other schools, like our sorting hat would then figure out, wait, actually there's more like eight groups now in the competitive space. So when people are early on, what we were able to do here is we said, well, who are the people in soft launch that are kind of like our, 
are tasting experts. They're like the people where we're going to be getting really good feedback from. And so what we did, we just micro segment. We, we looked at people who are really low on agreeableness. So they're very vocal. They're, they're willing, but high on altruism. So they're, they want to be helpful. They're not like just assholes who are just disagreeing with everything. And then high on endurability within the space, meaning endurability is a really important metric that we measure. And it literally matches LTV when we hook up data with games. We've never had a game where endurability and LTV were different, actually, in, across hardcore to midcore to any genre, console, etc. And what endurability measures is how likely a person is to be in this sort of experience and really like it over a long period of time. Um, and that's mm -hmm. a really, really important metric. So we high endurability, um, low, low agreeableness, high altruism. And we launched this audience and we were able to see the most engaged Harry Potter group within those parameters. Cause every time you put, you give it sort of a message, it finds maybe there's three groups, maybe there's seven, it finds the groups. And we really identified who were, whoa, these are our core tasters. These guys are going to give us great feedback, but they're going to be honest. They're here to help. They're the sub-segment of the bigger scalable part of our market. And so from that, we were able to actually craft a very good go-to-market strategy of, hey, we're starting with these users. These users are going to bring in if we're designing mechanics around them, we already know it's going to fit this bigger segment that's like hundreds of millions of people. And it creates a very clear pathway then from a success perspective. And I think one of the problems too is early on, there's always a vocal minority. And a lot of times the vocal minority, which anybody who's run a really large successful game before knows that these people are often not representative of the people loving the game, playing the game a lot, really investing in the game. And so it helps cut through the bullshit I forget which customer said that this was one of the big things for them was it cut through the noise in soft launch, the, the loudest people, they actually were able to say, Hey, wait a second. We are making something that people really, really love. And the stuff that everyone's complaining about, that's actually persona five, all the complainers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we like, if, if it weren't for 12 trades, just that alone, we would have been listening to them because of how they were kind of shouting so much, but maybe to speak to the, the soft launch part. And then what ends up happening is from a mechanic perspective, tightening that thing. Like we have a game that went from 2000 to 2 million DAU and has like 27% day seven retentions. They, they hit those numbers because what they did is in the early funnel, they recognized they had two major different parts of their population. And they, they made sure that there was mechanics that, played to both of those types of people. And so that's so, so important in that. And they would have missed out of half of the market. So if you chop that 2 million down to a million people, what would have happened from their DAU if they would have only focused on that one early funnel? And then knowing which funnels those things need to be, that's where, because we know the traits and the mechanics of those different groups, we can identify that. And we didn't make three or four funnels because the third and fourth and fifth and sixth personas they just weren't sizable enough from a, a scale perspective. Maybe later on, we, we go and get those folks. And what's interesting, I think, about that game is 95% um, of the people in that game have never played a mobile game before. So it's I think it, it speaks to our world and a lot of the ideas we have. Maybe a second part interesting to that game is... What, and I, we can't name the um, studios behind this one. We don't have the, the permission for it. But there's a bigger company, very one of the biggest, one of the top five, who said, 
we're paying attention to this game. We know all about it. We did all, all this research and they knew we worked with them and he, he was their head of consumer insight. And he's like, Joe, are they like this? Like, this is what we, and I was like, they were so far off of the reality. And I said, I bet you got the data that you're looking at from your, they had the, this big company had a similar game. And I said, I bet you recruited people from that game, huh? And, and that's where you got the data that you, you need like, exactly. It's from our internal recruitment. And I said, did you know that 95% of the people that play this game, though never played a game before. So the people that are playing other games are by far the minority. He was yeah. like, whoa, okay. <laughs> so even, even these really big companies, like we've talked to Activision about this, like how they look at and understand other games and kind of try to do teardowns and, and yeah, they've even kind of said like, we don't know. And a lot of it's always coming from your internal database that you've put together, which is based off of your own company. So it's, it's already biased from that. And also like, if you do research using like uh, maybe MTurk or questionnaires or polls, and you pay for these things, the difference with our data is it's from the players directly from all these different games that they actually play. And like, there's people in games that would never give this type of, of data. If you said, take a questionnaire and tell us about this, like they're, 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 they're giving that because they want their experience to be better for the game that they love the most. And they're like, these are not in, like, we have a game where it's like 40 year old males from a demographic perspective, a day later, they've taken 50,000 psychological assessments. That's not a group that's just going to go do that if you try to survey them. And, and so the, the quality of what we're, what we're coming from, it's directly from the player within. And I think that's an important note too. If you look at one of those games, just because they're going to do that in one game, there's other games they don't care about where, where if we're coming and saying, help, want to help improve your, your experience. Not everybody is, is as into that game. So it might not be as important to that person. And I think that's because we work with across the whole industry with so many different types of games, it creates this database that's so much closer to reality than anything else out there, like just hands down. Yeah, yeah, and, and really actionable. So like that's, that's the clear, clear advantage that you guys have. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's not like, just data. <laughs> yeah, then thinking about the, the lifespan of these games, there's so many free-to-play games that are hitting 10 years soon that were in the first wave, like Clash of Clans and a bunch of really sort of like these legendary mobile titles that were in the first wave. What do you think about like applying these services, tools, the knowledge that you guys have built with mm-hmm. the, the stuff that you have in 12 Trades to help out with these games that maybe have, have plateaued or not, aren't growing? to look into how they could grow again? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. It's interesting because for us with that question, I think we're coming a little bit full circle with our whole journey because it's the very first game that we ever worked on, as Joe mentioned before, Dragonvale. At the time, that was an eight-year-old title. So that was exactly that use case. Their question was, we're, we're dialed in at around, I think it was 220, 250,000 DAU. It plateaued, wasn't really a lot of growth there. And then a simple, quote-unquote, a simple change on the app store side, on the creative side there, and click-through rates and conversion jumps immediately after seven years of trying to figure out what growth levers you know to pull through A-B testing. And then if you look at one of the uh, games that Joe mentioned previously that we work on, CCP with EVE Online, like a game's, I believe, 18 years old this year. 
And they just went live a couple of weeks ago. September was a big month for them. And they revamped their entire first-time user experience and onboarding, just to name a couple of things. And we worked very extensively uh, with them on that process. Their internal user research team really embraced what we do. And they took, they took it. And the majority of what was being built is based on the data that we uncovered about the EVE community. And also then in conjunction with Navigator, helping them understand if these are the current players in your game, are there other players like that or better segments, more valuable segments that would also really enjoy playing that game, whether it's 10, you know, 15 or 18 years old that you currently haven't brought into your environment yet? Are there untapped segments out there? And through a combination of that, in this particular case, you start to design a Fatui to the types of new players that you really want to bring in your game and increase your chances of success of they're actually completing the tutorial, which if you've played even the past that you need a little bit of time to complete the onboarding in the tutorial, like it takes a while to set that up. It's not for everyone. And then actually nurture new players that don't have Eve legacy or returning players that churned back in the past to bring them in. And I think they've, they've been seeing incredible success now over the first three to almost four weeks since the launch where somewhere between, I think it's 10 to 15% more of new players that come in actually successfully complete the tutorial, go through the Fatui and end up as really highly engaged players in the game. So if you're talking of growing those user bases, there's a very clear case there where they tweak their marketing strategy a little bit. And then the throughput, because the funnel is more in line with who these people really are, psychologically speaking, it nurtures them into that open world much, much more effectively. And yeah, it's 15% of more, 15% additional players that now play Eve as opposed to, as opposed to before. That's, I think nice. it's a very, just a very, to name a very specific use case there. Yeah, we, we can't really say that a game, when it's old, means it's done. <laughs> like, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. We just had a, a conversation last night with another really, really old game. And it, because Bastion was the top line funnel, um, but this was for the end. And he's like, yeah. what do we do? <laughs> like all these guys that have been here and there's, it's like, do you just have more content for them? Do you just, what's that that thing you do? And that's the exact, and it's it's one of these other really old big games. And that's exactly the use case that we're working through with them too. So it's it's the top of the funnel and bringing in new blood, but it's also at the at the very end of it, what does that thing need to be? And I think it, it speaks to back to this kind of 2020 thing of people investing in experiences more than goods and services. People want to be a part of a community. They're tired of like, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And if you're part of this Eve online community, as an example, it's a part, it becomes a part of people's identity. It becomes a part of, pe- of who people are and they want to stay there. Like they're, they want to be, that's, that's them. It's, it's me. And these are my people and that's their community and providing a, an experience in a world. I think where the future is going, where everyone's like, who's going to create the metaverse? That that's not how it's going to work out. There's going to be multiple experiences that speak to all of us. And we're going to all kind of maybe jump in and out the ones that resonate with us the most, where we, we meet people, we, we do some things that we cannot do online that are easier to do online in the future. But I think every, all these old experiences, if they're think if they're forward looking, I think they need to be thinking about that. They need to be thinking about how do we grow this experience into a platform that people can, because they've, they've achieved what no other companies have, or very few companies have achieved, whether it's 
Clash of Clans, EVE Online, World of Warcraft, these types of games that they're they're legendary, right? And having them as a platform that people can come, like we, we've talked with someone who was a, a gamer for when we were talking with Supercell, Clash mm-hmm. of Clans. He's like, I go there still because like, I just, that's where I meet my brother. We work in different countries. That's the place where we like to hang out is in, is in Clash of Clans. And it's Fun. like, and that's, that's super cool. But I, I think that's, there's this new breath of opportunity because of things like the metaverse and, and I don't, hot topic nfts collectibles but there's all this if you start to think outside the box a little bit about the platform that these because it's a platform now and it gets that big there's like a whole new world of opportunities for these people now yeah for sure hey for the final question what what is the best way for gaming studios people to get in contact with you yeah, I think one of the easiest ways right now, there, there's there's two. Go to our website, 12traits.com, simple contact form. If you hit us up there, it'll go straight to, to our colleagues, Florian, Vincent, or or Joan, myself, and we'll be, you have us on basically direct direct dial via, via email right away. If you're engaged in the various different gaming community Slack channels, like if you're on the Deconstructor Fun Slack channel, we're, we're there too. So you could hit us up with questions anytime anytime there. So those are usually really, really good avenues. Next conference that's around the corner. I know people are going to slush. Hopefully we can all meet in person again. It looks like, it looks like COVID's going to let this one happen. We're all really excited. So we're going to be back, back in the Nordics, back in Helsinki. And there's hopefully they're doing press start. I believe it's called the dedicated gaming event as part of slush or press, press play. One one of the two, I forget. It's been two years. It's unfortunate, but yeah, go, go to the website or our emails are really easy too. It's usually just our first name at 12 traits.com. And then you have a, you have a direct line to, to any of us. Perfect. Hey guys, this was so much fun. I, I think like, you guys are also like figuring things out more and more about like how do you help people and it's really cool to to follow how you've been building the company and look forward to seeing more interesting stuff from you guys well thanks Joachim it's always thanks a pleasure see you in Helsinki yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. see you guys soon alright All right. take care bye. bye bye if you like our content please do hit follow or subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app. And if you're not yet our newsletter subscriber, please check that out at EliteGameDevelopers.com newsletter, where we share every Friday a new set of things regarding gaming startups, investing, raising funding, whatnot. So check that out. And I'll see you next week. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.